continue in our worship this morning through the preaching of God's word. And so I want to read our passage for us, which is found in 1 Kings chapter 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or your Bible apps, or it's also in the bulletin, the message map that you received. It's 1 Kings chapter 20. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Now Benadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. Accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Benadad says, Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord the king, I and all I have are yours. The messengers came again and said, This is what Benadad says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, see how this man is looking for uh, land and said, or for trouble. When he sent my, for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I did not refuse him. The elders and the people all answered, don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Benadad's messengers, tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Benadad. Then Benadad sent another message to Ahab, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered, tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Benadad answered, or heard this message while he and the kings were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. If you will bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as a body on a Sunday morning to sing praises to you because you are worthy to sit under the preaching of your word. And so, Lord, we pray for Pastor Kevin as he faithfully proclaims your word, that you would give him clarity of mind. And, Lord, we pray for ourselves that as we engage with your living word, that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that are willing and ready to be shaped and molded and conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, may we leave this room changed. Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Ryan. And thank you so much for being here this morning. Can you hear me? Is it on? Oh, we're good, good. Thank you for being here. When you came in, you should have received a bulletin. If you look on the back of that bulletin, uh, you will find a message map that will help guide you as we go through the text today. And while you're locating that, let me just say welcome to those who are in our overflow room, or if you're watching by video, if you're listening online, we'd like to say welcome to you as well. So one of the greatest uh, center-to-saint stories uh, outside of the Bible uh, is found in the life of an Italian lawyer named Bartolo Longo. He was born in 1841 in what was then at the time called the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, or what now is now southern Italy, uh, near Naples. Um, he was born into a devout Catholic family, 
But while he was in college, he came under the influence of some university students who were into sorcery and witchcraft. Uh, a short while later, while he was in law school at the University of Naples, he denounced the faith of his parents, he joined a satanic cult, and he eventually became a priest in what was called the Church of Satan. He reportedly promised his soul to a demon, uh, he presided over satanic rituals, and he preached forcefully against Christianity in general and against the Catholic Church in particular, ironically calling Christianity evil and the Church of Satan good. He later wrote about this time in his life, and he said this. He said, I grew to hate monks, priests, and the Pope, and in particular, I detested the Dominicans the Catholic monks who were the most formidable, furious opponents of those great modern professors proclaimed by the university as the champions of all sorts of freedom. However, Bartolo, as a cult priest sometime later, began to suffer from extreme depression and anxiety. Uh, one of his professors, a man named Vincenzo Pepe, a devout Roman Catholic, began to meet with Bartolo. And then Pepe introduced Bartolo to, of all people, a Dominican monk, those people that Bartolo hated. But through the kindness and patience of this monk, Bartolo became a follower of Christ. And after his conversion of experience... He spent the, the rest of his life faithfully serving the Lord. Here's why I tell you that story. Bartolo is just one instance in a long, long line of individuals who went from sinner to saint. People who, although they were extremely rebellious against the Lord, God still held out his gracious hand of mercy and offered them eternal life, and their lives were dramatically changed. You read about this in the Bible. Think about Rahab, the prostitute, who became one of God's people. Think about Matthew, the tax collector, hated by those who were religious, became one of the disciples. Paul, a murderer of Christians, became a follower of Christ and the writer of 13 letters in our New Testament. And as well, we read throughout history, story after story over the last 2,000 years of men and women who, like Bartolo, had dramatic conversion experiences. Former drug addicts, former adulterers, former prostitutes, and murderers, and atheists, and haters of Christianity, all responding to the goodness of God, His kindness and His mercy, holding his hand out to them with the offer of eternal life. And even the worst of sinners have repented and have, the, and have had their sins forgiven. This morning, that is exactly what we are going to see God doing in the life of an individual who was the most wicked king to ever rule over Israel. In the passage that Ryan read earlier, and in fact in all of 1 Kings chapter 20, 
We see God's goodness on full display, but demonstrated to someone who is in full force rebellion against God. Now, before we dive back into the text, let me take just a moment to catch you up. This fall, we have been in a series on the book of First Kings. Uh, First and Second Kings together tell the story of the royal family in Israel. Uh, the monarchy began with a guy named Saul, who was king, and then David became the second king, and then his son Solomon was the third king over Israel. And these three kings together ruled for 120 years, and during their rule, Israel was one united kingdom. But then under Rehoboam, Solomon's son, the kingdom split. So there was the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom that was called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel lasted for 240 years until it was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. During that 400-year period, they had 19 kings, and all 19 were bad. Or as the writer of Kings says, they all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. However, we've talked about over the past couple of weeks, while they were all bad... There was one who was really bad. They were all evil, but there was one who was particularly evil. His name was Ahab. Ahab ruled for 22 years. And during all of that time, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Most notably, he married this foreign woman named Jezebel, who brought to Israel her worship of Baal and Asherah, these fertility gods and they promoted this worship in Israel they built temples in Israel they constructed other high places of worship for these gods in Israel and they hunted down and killed all the prophets of God including a good godly prophet named Elijah they attempted to take his life as well I mean while Ahab may not have been a priest in the church of Satan He was still just as evil and awful. He worked hard against the Lord, and he worked hard against God's people. And yet God, in his mercy and his grace, showed this evil, awful king incredible goodness, even to rebellious, stiff-necked King Ahab. God offered chance after chance after chance to repent. That is the story that Ryan read earlier. The first verse of that story introduced us to a king named Benadad. Benadad was from the nation of Aram. Aram at that point was this up-and-coming power located to the northeast of Israel in what is modern-day Syria. In fact, when I was in Israel a few years ago, I had the chance to go to this formerly used military base in the northeastern part of Israel. It was one of the few non-biblical sites that we visited. Uh, You can see a a few of the pictures uh, there. One was from inside one of the tunnels. This is from the base on top of the base. Uh, The picture I really want you to see is the last picture. This is one I took standing on the base looking into Syria. In fact, Syria is located just a few miles from there. Damascus, the capital of Syria, was only 20 miles away from us. 
That valley that you're looking at in that picture, that's where Benadad was. That was Aram. Benadad, this king, it says that he had 32 kings aligned with him. These were most likely tribal chiefs. He had built this massive alliance. And once he had his troops in place, he came up over that mountain that's now called the Golan Heights, and he began to attack Israel. And then he sent word to King Ahab. And the word was this, Give me the best of your wives, your children, your silver, and your gold. You pay tribute to me, or I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. You have to remember, Israel had just been through a three and a half year drought at this point. Their military was weakened and in no shape to take on Benadad and this army that he had built with all of these alliances. So, as you heard earlier, Ahab agreed. He agreed to the request of Benadad. We're not sure why initially he agreed. I happen to suspect this was his way of getting rid of Jezebel. She was something else. And he thought, well, maybe, maybe I can give her to Benadad and he can deal with her. You know, honey, I would keep you around, but this guy, you know, he's demanding and they've got a powerful army. However, most likely, the reason that he agreed uh, to Benadad's request was that he had planned to only give a few women, a few children, some of his silver, just a little bit of gold, enough to appease King Benadad and to maybe get him to turn his attention and turn his armies to other kings and other kingdoms. Only problem was, Benadad was pretty smart and he smelled a rat. And so he sent word back to Ahab, I'm going to send some troops we're going to go through the castle, we're going to do a full search, and we will take what we want the best of everything for ourselves. So then Ahab sends word back, nope, can't do that, sorry, cannot agree to those terms. So then Benadad sends word back to Ahab, okay, fine, then get ready because I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. So then Ahab sends this word back to King Benadad, and I'm going to put this on the screen for a couple of reasons. One, this is one of the few times in his life that Ahab actually showed any wisdom at all. And the second reason I'm putting it up is this good wisdom for all of us. This is verse 11. The king of Israel, that was Ahab, answered, Tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. In other words, do all your bragging after you've done that thing and prove that you can do what you say you're going to do. Nobody wants to hear, well, I can, and I will, and I'm gonna. Just do it. Just do it, and then later you can talk about it. It's one of the few times he ever showed wisdom, and it's pretty good wisdom for the rest of us as well. So the rest of the chapter, after what Ryan read, is, is long, and we didn't have time for Ryan to read it all, but basically here's what happened. After all of the smack talk between Ahab and Benadad, after the saber rattling, basically after that point, a prophet, this unnamed prophet, comes to King Ahab. 
And this prophet comes and says, look, you need to understand, Ben is really mad. And he has this massive army. And Israel does not. We do not have the troops. And logically, we should go to battle against him and he will kill us. He will beat us badly. However, the Lord wants you to know that he is God. And he's going to give you a great unexpected victory. Which is exactly what happened. Look down at verse 19. It says, The junior officers under the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit. But Benadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Miraculously here, because of the Lord's provision, Israel defeated the Arameans. Benadad was on the run. Ahab did not have to give up his wives or his children or his silver or his gold. God was good and gracious to Ahab and the nation of Israel. But here's what you need to understand. God was not done. He was not finished pouring out his blessings on Ahab. This unnamed prophet returns to Ahab after the battle and he says, you need to get ready. You need to use the winter to prepare because Benadad is going to come back and he's going to fight again. Which is exactly what happened. Although the Arameans were defeated by the Israelites, they excused that loss. Look at verse 23. This was their excuse. It says, Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, Their gods are the gods of the hills. That is why they were too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do you hear their excuse? The Aramean officials come to Ahab and they say, Hey, I know we lost the battle, but here's why. Their God rules over the hills, and we fought the battle in the hills, but if we fight in the plains, we will win. Their gods are not the gods of the plains. We can go to the valley and we can fight them there. Let me just say here, parenthetically, how often are we like the Arameans? We say, God, you're the God of one place, but not over here. In fact, God, you're the God of the hills. When life's going well, when things are going great, God, I'll turn and I'll praise you. When life's not going well, I'm not sure if you're even around. You're the God of the hills, but not the valleys. Or how often do we say, well, God, you're the God of this place, but not that place. You're the God of my church life, but not my school life. Or you're the God of my work, but not my online life. Or, or maybe, you know, you're the God of my family, but not my career. We say to God, hey, stay in this compartment, stay over here, don't get outside of these boundaries, because I really don't want you messing with my life in all these other areas. God, you're the God of the hills, not the plains, not the valley, not over here. We are prone to do exactly what the Arameans did in this case. So the springtime came, and once again, the armies of Israel 
were set to do battle with the armies of the Arameans. This time, though, the battle was not in the hills. It was in the valley. And the text tells us that the Israelite army looked like two small flock of goats, while their enemy, the Arameans, completely covered the hillside. In other words, it was just a few thousand against hundreds of thousands. Benadad, I am sure, looked around, he puffed out his chest, and he said, this time, victory is mine. There is no way that little ragtag army of the Israelites is going to win against this massive force that I have assembled. Once again, God was good and gracious to King Ahab and to the Israelites. I want you to notice what this unnamed prophet said to Ahab before the battle. Verse 28, The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands. And then I want you to notice this last phrase. This is key. And you will know that I am the Lord. And you, Ahab, will know that I am the Lord. The prophet used this exact same language back in verse 13. To say to Ahab, I will be good to you. I will bless you. I will give you victory. And here is why. It is not just to pour out blessings on your life. But it is so that you will know that I am in fact the Lord. Ahab, you have worshipped Baal. You have introduced Baal worship all over Israel. And guess what, Ahab? When you go into battle, Baal will not give you victory. Baal will not protect you because Baal is not real. But the Lord, Yahweh, He is real. And He will prove it to you. He will prove it to you by giving you victory in this battle. And then you, Ahab, you will know that God is the Lord. I mean, here, here is God's incredible goodness on display. And what the prophet said here was exactly right. Look at verse 29. Here's what happened. For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted a hundred thousand casualties on the Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 27,000 of them. And Benedad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. Can't you just imagine the shock of Benedad? The king of this massive army, this rising power, going against the tiny little army of the Israelites, and yet 127,000 of his men died. And here we see that they were nearly annihilated on the battlefield, but then about a quarter of them escaped and went to this nearby city of Aphek. And God was again so good to them that he caused the wall to fall and to kill those soldiers who had escaped. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very kind to those soldiers. You need to understand these were nations that wanted to kill the Israelites. They wanted to wipe God's people off the map. 
God was very clear. I want you to wipe them off the earth because they're going to continually come against you time and time again. So 100,000 are defeated on the battlefield. 27,000 escape. They go into the city of Aphek. God causes the wall to kill all of them. God's goodness was on full display. And he proved that apparently he was the God of the hills and the plains and the cities and the walls and everything else as well. Okay, let me stop right here and ask the question, so what? What does a passage like this mean for us? I mean, I know in one sense you say, well, it's just really interesting to read. You know, it's kind of like a Braveheart movie. You can picture Mel Gibson as one of the Israelites riding in front of the troops against this huge force and rallying the troops and the Lord is with us and they go into battle and win. There's a lot of excitement in the passage, but how do we apply this to us? What does this mean for us? Let me give you three things, and this is all about God's mercy. And you can see this on your message map. The first is this. You can write this in. God's mercy is seen in His goodness. This is the big idea. This is the central theme of this passage. That even to wicked, evil, awful King Ahab, the Lord was gracious and kind. And why? So that Ahab would return to the Lord. Now listen, there are certainly times that God gets our attention through discipline. In fact, the Bible is clear about that. I'll put this verse on the screen for you. This is Hebrews 12, and the writer of Hebrews tells us this. To endure hardship as discipline, God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? There are times that God will bring harsh circumstances into our lives in order to get our attention and to draw us back to himself. Now, this does not mean that every time you go through a trial that you have been disobedient and that God's trying to get your attention. Jesus went through trials, but he was not disobedient. Paul faced very harsh circumstances, but Paul was good and godly and faithful. It does not mean that every time life takes a downward turn that God is disciplining you. However, it does mean that God will use discipline to get our attention and to draw us back to himself. But I want you to notice as well, God not only uses discipline, God uses blessings to get our attention and to draw us to himself. Notice what Paul wrote in Romans. You can see this verse on your message map. Romans 2, Paul says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? And here's the key, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And here's what Paul is saying, that God's goodness and kindness in your life is designed to bring you back to a place of repentance. So let me give you just a little bit of pastoral advice here. Often what I've seen is God has a two-step process to draw us back to himself. Step one is his goodness and kindness. Step two is discipline. I like step one a lot better than step two. My pastoral advice is listen and repent in step one so you don't have to face step two. God uses goodness and mercy 
to draw us back to himself. And that is exactly what we see in this passage. That in King Ahab's life, who had rebelled and rebelled and rebelled against God, God's hand of mercy was extended for him to repent. Here's the second thing. God's mercy is seen in his patience. You can write that in. God's mercy is seen in his patience. King Ahab ruled over Israel for 22 years. For 22 years, Ahab rebelled against the Lord. And although we don't have the exact timeline here of these events, they happened toward the end of his reign. And God was patient year after year after year with Ahab. When we turn over the New Testament, we read about the merciful patience of God. Uh, Peter writes in his second letter these words, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Throughout the Bible, we read about the Lord's incredible patience. And throughout history, we read story after story of those who have rebelled for years and years and years against God. And God, in His patience, still extends His hands of, hand of mercy and for them later in life to repent. One of my favorite stories of someone coming to Christ later in life is that of Chuck Colson. Uh, some of you who are older may remember Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Nixon during the Watergate era. Uh, he was one of the individuals who went to jail for his actions during Watergate. And it was in prison that Chuck Colson became a follower of Christ. And he wrote this about that experience. I walked into the chapel at the prison, and I fell on my knees, and I committed my life to Jesus Christ. I said, Lord, I'm going to serve you the rest of my life. I don't know what you want me to do, but whatever it is, I will do it. Colson was 41 years old when that experience happened. And he followed Christ. And then he served the Lord faithfully for the next 39 years until he died at the age of 80. God will show us his, his mercy through his goodness. God will show us his mercy through his patience. And then finally, here's the last thing. You can write this in on your message map. God's mercy has a limit. God's mercy has a limit. Here's what you see in this passage, that God over and over and over again was so good to Ahab, giving him victory after victory after victory that he did not deserve. But Ahab did not get it. He just did not get what God was doing. And he continued to disobey the Lord. And finally, his last act of disobedience was to show mercy to King Benadad. God had said, I want you to wipe the uh, Arameans out fully because they will come back and they will try to attack you again. And they will come back and they will try to wipe out Israel again. You do not show mercy. But you get to the end of the passage and Ahab shows mercy to Benadad and embraces him strangely as a friend. This man who tried to take his wives and children and his silver and his gold who fought against the Israelites. Ahab tries to make an alliance and embrace him as his friend. 
Look, look at verse 42. This is what the prophet said to Ahab. He said to the king, This is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I had determined to die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. That was the last chance that Ahab had to repent and to turn back to God. You turn, turn over just a couple of chapters later, and God finally takes Ahab's life. He was done. He gave him years, 22 years as king, to repent. He extended his mercy time after time after time again. And Ahab just wouldn't listen. He remained stiff-necked and rebellious. When I was in graduate school, I remember a, a story that a professor of mine told. And it's one of these stories that has just stuck to the roof of my brain all of these years. I do need to give you a warning. Someone in the first service came to me and said, that story did not have a happy ending. I said, I know. He said, you need to give us a warning. This is not a story with a happy ending. There you go. There's your warning. When he was in college, he became very good friends with an individual, a guy, and they were in each other's weddings, and they stayed in contact over the years. Even as um, they got married and started having kids, they would try to see each other once or twice a year. It was just one of those tight-knit forever friendships. He said one night his friend called him just in tears. He could barely understand what his friend was saying. He said finally he, he was able to get through enough of the, uh, the sobs and the tears to explain that this professor's friend's wife had just left him. He found out she was having an affair and, uh, and, and she said, that's it, I'm done. After about a week, he, he went back to her and said, look, I, I want to forgive you for this. I want to get our marriage together, bring our family back together. And she said, okay, that's fine, except I'm not interested. And in fact, this guy that I've been having an affair with, I'm going with him. And he said, by the way, child number three, that's not your kid. He said, I'm done. Friends went to her, tried to talk her out of it. People from church went to her and said, what are you doing? You're destroying your marriage. You're destroying your family. Person after person went to her and said, you have got to go back to your family. But she refused. She remained stiff-necked. This professor said about a year later, she went to the hospital to give birth to another kid. Very normal pregnancy, but some, for some reason, there in the hospital, in the operating room, she died suddenly. And this professor said, I cannot say this for sure. He said, but I just believe with everything in me that the, that the Lord had given her chance after chance to repent and when she did not, he said, that's it. You're done. This is it. God shows us his mercy through his goodness, through his patient goodness. But there is a point that we can rebel and rebel and rebel against the Lord. God says, that's it. I'm done. I've shown you goodness. I've shown you mercy. That's it. Maybe there's someone here today, and God has been so patient with you. And God has shown you his mercy and his goodness time and time again. Here is my advice. Do not ignore what God is doing in your life. Do not ignore what God is telling you. Repent and turn back to him. 